0: Hi everyone, my name is Geraldine Jones-Putra and this is the New Earth Lawyer podcast. Today I wanted to talk about a pretty big topic, lawyers, trust and risk. I think I'm getting quite ambitious tackling these massive topics, but let me tell you what I think about these subjects. When we talk about trust in lawyers, often we focus on a couple of things. Firstly, we tend to focus on how lawyers can gain more trust from their clients. Secondly, we focus on the standing of lawyers and and the trust that they have in general from the community. Now, there have been a number of books and articles, I mean many, uh, written about how lawyers can gain more trust from their clients. And my favorite book on this topic is actually The Trusted Advisor. It's not a new book. It was actually published in 2000, but, and it's written by David Maister, Charles Green, and uh, Robert Galford. So David Meister is a guru of professional services firm management. He's a former Harvard Business School professor and a consultant. And when that book came out, um, And many of you watching this, I suspect, are going to be too young to remember it. Uh, I had just been promoted to senior associate at the law firm I was working at. And I was given that book as a birthday present. And I I loved it. It was a very popular book. David Meister was very popular at the time. Uh, Lawyers of all seniority were reading it and recommending it and I devoured it right. So it's a great little book. What's great about it is that it's easy to read, it's full of lists which lawyers like and so it's right up our alley and it even has a formula in it that tells you what trust is all about. So like most good lawyers I applied the formula and worked my way through the book and after practicing the tips in it for 20 years I'll tell you that the biggest lesson from the book and the biggest part of the formula is that um, lawyers when dealing with clients need to remember that it's it's about less self-orientation, not more. In other words, it's not about you. So stop focusing on yourself, your thoughts, your feelings and start focusing on your, your clients. Stop thinking about how you can prove yourself and sound clever or even get the client to engage you or give you more work and start thinking about what the client needs. So that was the big lesson from from the book. And through that, said David Meister and his co-authors, we could generate more trust with clients. It's a similar principle when it comes to the community and why the community doesn't have a great deal of trust in lawyers. It's just on a broader scale. Truth be told, lawyers are not seen as a very ethical profession and therefore trust in us is pretty low. The Governance Institute of Australia does a survey every year. They call it the Ethics Index. It's well respected. And this year, uh, or the end of last year, 2020, lawyers fared a little bit better than previous years, but still really not that well. We're in the bottom 10 occupations when it comes to how well our ethics are perceived and we could therefore say that the community generally doesn't trust lawyers much. I spoke about this in a podcast for Lawyers Weekly uh, with the CEO of the Governance Institute, Megan Motto, Uh, and my take on it at the time was that lawyers need to be showing the community that as a profession, we take our duty to the wider community seriously and hence we're not just focusing on our own interests again that that idea that we're not orienting to itself that we're orienting towards either client or community or both so in short you could say the lesson is think big picture lawyers Uh, And of course, there are individual behaviours that go into how you're going to establish trust with individual clients. So you need to know what you're talking about. You need to be credible. You need to do what you say you're going to do, follow through on commitments that you make. You need to be reliable. All of those are important. You also need to get comfortable with breaking down that professional barrier that many lawyers have and many professionals have that tells us that we have to put on our serious authoritative persona, uh, we can break that down and and start acting like human beings and treating the client like a human being, ask them how they're doing, take the time to get to know them, and for goodness sake, don't be tempted to charge the client when you're doing that. Um, Now then, drawing out to, to the bigger picture of trust. If you listened to my recent podcast or you watched it uh, with Professor Camilla Anderson from the University of Western Australia, she does the comic book contracts. We did talk briefly about trust and Camilla had a, a humorous remark that she made. She said when she brought up the word trust, she said, oh, the transactional lawyers are just going to tune out when the conversation turns to trust which is a joke but, you know, there was some truth in it. What Camilla and I were talking about when we were talking about trust was the way in which lawyers can help to cement trust between the client and the counterparty. So not between lawyer and client, but between the client and relationships that the client might have. As lawyers, we're not really equipped to deal with the language and the dynamics of interpersonal trust. All of the issues uh, that we have with building trust with our own clients and with the community actually, I believe, stem from this. What do we deal in? We deal in pitfalls, landmines, bear traps, We deal with the devil that's in the detail. We deal with what can go wrong. We don't like taking chances. Our training is not about taking chances. And we hate to advise our clients to take chances. In other words, we hate to tell our clients to trust. So we see ourselves when we when we act as lawyers and we advise our clients and give legal advice as protecting our clients from risk. But here's something that I think it's important for lawyers to keep in mind and that is that risk is a part of life. The whole area of risk as a discipline has developed uh, and companies uh, recognize this. Especially if you look at the financial sector, risk is now a, a separate department in itself. The risk teams are well-resourced and staffed and they're massive. Uh, this, not just in the financial sector, you also find risk teams where, in, in industries where safety is a priority. So the aviation sector has huge safety and risk teams, for example. So the whole area of risk as a a separate field, as a separate discipline, I believe lawyers would benefit from gaining more than a passing knowledge of because it's going to increase our understanding of how risk fits into real life. When I began to advise clients at a senior level in the financial sector, um, and indeed, when I undertook secondments to major banks uh, to to sit in their legal teams as an advisor, I was struck at how relatively undeveloped my understanding of risk as a subject was. Um, whereas in, in banks, for example, everybody uh, is more or less trained on the discipline of risk and understand the, the elements, the fundamentals of it. So, as a lawyer, I realised that I understand certain types of risk. I understand compliance risk, I understand regulatory risk. To an extent I understand reputational risk. And in my areas of, of legal expertise, I can advise on how to control those risks with legal solutions. But I found that I I really came to benefit from understanding that there are many different types of risk and many different ways to control and manage risk. Uh, A legal solution is one of those solutions or one of those controls. And that knowing which area of risk I was touching on in my advice actually made me a better lawyer. Now, as I advise boards and even sitting on a governing body um, myself, I've come to appreciate that. Every organization has its own appetite for risk. Recognizing, of course, that risk, as I said, is a part of real life. Every organization is going to have its own tolerances for how much risk it's prepared to bear In which areas. And good governance means that this should be written down and it should be signed off by the governing body or the board of the organization. So what I'm suggesting when it comes to risk and lawyers getting to know risk better, the broad meaning of risk I mean, uh, firstly it would really help lawyers to get every lawyer to get a basic understanding our education on this discipline of risk. The Australian Institute of Company Directors runs courses on risk from a governance perspective. The Governance Institute of Australia also has a range of courses that are great on risk management and risk governance. The second thing I would say is if you're a lawyer and you um, are advising clients uh at a relatively senior level you it would pay to have a conversation with your client uh, about their organization's risk management framework their risk appetite statement and the risk tolerances of the organization because if you either are or you're aspiring to be the go-to advisor for their riskiest issues or their most critical pressing issues then it it really would benefit uh, you and the client for you to understand what the organization sees as its risks uh, and what it's able to or willing to tolerate in terms of risk have a chat even with the chief risk officer or with the chair, confidential chat with the chair of the risk committee if they've got one or their audit committee. Why is this important and what does this have to do with trust, which I also was talking about earlier? Well, as I said, it's going to help you understand where the client can accept a risk and where it can't. So this is going to help with the individual trust that you, you develop with the client but it's also gonna help you guide the client to have more trusting relationships with its stakeholders. So clients, when they talk about this quality in lawyers, sometimes refer to it as being more commercial. What they mean is the lawyer's more realistic when advising on issues of risk. So Professor Camilla Anderson and I we were talking about, just to give you an example, organizations who are prepared to remove non-competition clauses from their employment contracts, meaning clauses that prevent the employee from working with a competitor after they leave the organization. Now these clauses, most lawyers know they're tricky to enforce because there's a public interest reason That prevent many of those clauses from being enforceable because it's really preventing someone from being able to earn their livelihood. So many organisations understand that they're not even going to try and enforce these these clauses in their employment contracts. So uh, Camilla was giving us the example of an organisation that just dropped it from their employment contract, their standard employment contract, and that would have developed more trust with the organization's employees because they were prepared to accept that particular risk. I'll give you another example. In 2018, the software company Atlassian, huge Australian-headquartered software company, uh, made public its term sheets on how it enters into acquisitions of companies. Now, Atlassian acquires many companies. Uh, At that stage, it said it had acquired over 20. And what their publicly available term sheet does is it strips out those clauses that they just don't think they need, including a number of warranties and including a number of clauses um, that... uh, you know, um, now actually limit the liability of the, the people they're buying from. So they've actually included clauses that are favorable to the companies or the founders that they're buying companies from. And they only kept in the basic ones that they felt they needed. Now, Atlassian is, as I said, a huge company. And Atlassian could have used its massive bargaining power and its might to put in whatever clauses it wanted. But here's what it said. It didn't want to do that. The chief legal officer, I'm gonna quote the chief legal officer here. He said, the mergers and acquisitions process is outdated, inefficient, unnecessarily combative, with too much time and energy spent negotiating deal terms and not enough on what matters most, building great products together and delivering more customer value. In other words, Atlassian is saying, we want to focus on building relationships that are full of trust with our newly acquired businesses and partners, and we're going to accept a measure of risk to get there. And being open with the term sheet, the chief legal officer said, demonstrates the trust that we are placing in you, the founder and a future leader at Atlassian. That is the bigger picture. If you're a lawyer who's developing, you're in your early years in the profession, I would advise you to take a look at where your client might be telling you something like this, where your client's saying, I'm willing to take a risk because I want, in exchange for that, I want to build trust somewhere with a stakeholder. When you see points being traded off in a negotiation, take note, because those are the areas, the opportunities where you're going to learn where clients are willing to accept risk for trust. It will pay to understand, do the research and understand what the legal um, reasons are behind those clauses, what are the black letter legal risks of giving up a particular point, as well as what are the real life risks and gains. So in the future, you can advise your client on what what those risks are and you can guide them on making an informed decision um, where they can be prepared to accept a risk in pursuit of, of trust. Ultimately, trust is what makes a society, not protecting against every risk that there is. A society or a community that lacks trust is going to fall apart very quickly. So that's it from from me. Um, Those are my thoughts on on trust, how trust can make us better lawyers or dealing with trust can make us better lawyers. If you've liked this episode, um, then please like it on social media and think about following the New Earth Lawyer on our social media channels. Thank you and goodbye.